Hello, everyone. Welcome back from lunch. My name is Randy Thomas. I'm an aerodigestive SLP at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. This panel inclu includes skilled pediatric SLPs that manage complex aerodigestive patients. The speakers will review a variety of cases that highlight feeding therapy interventions. We all agree that there's no one-size-fits-all technique and no perfect treatment approach. Our goal is to share our experience knowing there's not always a right or wrong answer for these cases. Our first speaker is Kimberly Morris. She's a pediatric SLP and an international board certified lactation consultant. She leads the cardiac and aerodigestive feeding programs at Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego. She will be discussing the complex management of a patient with single ventricle physiology. Jamie Hogel is a NICU SLP at the University of Washington Medical Center. Jamie's area of specialty is functional endoscopic evaluations of swallowing. She will be discussing the usefulness of fees to guide treatment in a premature infant with in utero exposures. And lastly, Bridget Harrington is a pediatric SLP at Colorado Children's Hospital, specializing in voice, resonance, and swallowing. Bridget will be discussing the multidisciplinary approach to managing a complex patient with cricopharyngeal achalasia. I don't want to hit your screen, right? Mm -hmm. Hi, everybody. Um, for a lot of the, the, for this presentation, I'm gonna assume knowledge. So we all are aware that we're not gonna go over all of the basics and that there's much more that we could cover um, in this amount of time. So we're just gonna jump into it. These are my disclosures. We're here for an aerodigestive conference. So we're not gonna discuss aerodigestive care, but I want you to think about as we think about treatments of patients, that that has to be at the forefront, whether you're on an aerodigestive team or not, even in the inpatient setting for every single step along the way. So how do we make those decisions um, for when we're doing bedside assessments? We know that these are all the different factors that play into a, a patient being safe, and we can establish different treatment targets based on each one of those. And so we have to determine what is gonna be the timing of when we do instrumental, when we actually just use our bedside clinical assessment when we're assessing these patients, especially in an inpatient setting, depending on why they're admitted, it's sometimes a moving target and you don't wanna prematurely do an uh, instrumental assessment. So we need to use, be part of the aerodigestive team and use our knowledge base of swallow physiology when we're at bedside to come up with different treatment targets. And that's what we're gonna, we're gonna come up with some different examples. If you look at this fees that's right here, you were seeing it play. Sometimes on the inpatient setting, we'll watch a patient clinically, but then you have to know when is it time to speak up other than just showing signs of aspiration. You need to know what are the norms for that patient population to be progressing. And if you see something aberrant, when do you investigate? In this patient, it was a patient who was status post-cardiac surgery. She was beginning to eat after her surgery. 
Her vocal cord function seemed okay. Her voice was fine. And then a couple days after she had surgery um, and she had been eating, she had onset of a hoarse voice. She was struggling with feeds and it ended up being um, herpes simplex virus and needed intervention. We ended up doing a fees in order to be able to understand why, why is this not, this child not progressing? We also have to be careful not to just look for aspiration. We know these patients are changing and we have to be able to think about how are they responding not only to what they're used to in their, when they're, when you see them post-op or when you see them in a deconditioned state, but how do they respond to the therapy strategies that we're doing and how does that reduce our risk of aspiration, even if we can't eliminate it? This is a patient where we were not doing any instrumental assessment. It's a post-op patient in the cardiac unit, but a lot of times we'll use near infrared spectroscopy, which will be able to look at whether a patient, how they're using their, um, using oxygen basically. So it tells, it can give us signs, a descending value tells us if a patient is going into hypoperfusion. And I'm not gonna go into handling and changing flow rates, we all know those, but we can use all of the principles of motor learning and um, all the principles of motor learning and also watch that patient and see what the response was in order to grade the input to see if we can have an improved response. Our goal overall is neuroprotection. And so we wanna minimize stress, but we also wanna be able to provide targets and treatment interventions that are gonna be able to help that patient move along a path that's gonna be more regulated and learn to feed in a successful way for developmental success as well. So how do I determine a safe feeding plan? How do we determine a safe feeding plan is really what we need to be thinking. And that's a constant question that you should be thinking about as you determine, when am I assessing this patient? What's the level of intervention that I'm gonna need to implement based on what the team also thinks for the stability of the patient? So we think about, can the patient eat? Are they able to, do they have that skill? Will the patient eat? We have so many patients that they probably would do fine if they eat, but they don't want to and understanding that system and keeping it primed from the beginning. And should that patient eat? What, what and how is the patient going to eat as well? Is this a patient that we really aren't looking for nutritive feeds and who cares if they eat Fritos um, or who cares if they are just latching to the breast and they're not getting anything for nutritive feeds and we keep some type of skill or are we saying we're trying to keep you with optimal growth and prepping for a cardiac surgery or your post-op and how do we optimize nutrition? So it depends on just what the goal is. Who do we treat? Do we get involved with patients that are intubated? And when does that happen? That's a team decision. But if we think about principles of motor learning and we wanna increase swallow frequency and we know that muscle atrophy occurs, how do we find a role with the team and create stability in a patient and find novel treatment techniques that can help prime a patient system over time. We need to think about not only was there aspiration, but we need to think about why was there aberrant bolus flow? And more importantly, what happens to the, what does the patient do in response to st different stimuli and different treatment techniques? We know that pacifier dips are different than if you're guiding a patient through practice. They, you can minimize aspiration, even if you're not fully completing, even if you're not fully eliminating it.
If you look at this patient, is this an aversive patient? Would you give this patient a bottle? If you look here and he kind of has a little bit of a grimace, or do you start shaping that behavior and you start learning what type of input does he respond well to? Deep pressure. Can you initiate a swallow? You help him initiate a swallow. If he has secretions pulled in his pharynx, how do we help him move through that? And what do I do? Even if we don't know what the physiology of the swallow is, what am I doing? And I want to increase swallow frequency. I want to increase independence of secretion management. What impact do I have on that patient when I provide different techniques? And then how do you begin helping that patient integrate that more on his own? And here's just an example of beginning to do some non-nutritive suck with a patient, not trying to get full lingual cupping and AP movement where you would think, hey, that's ideal. I want to teach that skill. That's, that's not normal. Well, maybe that patient's guarding and he's not ready to bring the base of tongue forward and have those secretions that are sitting back there go towards his airway. Can we have him just do shallow rooting? Can we help him do an ultra preemie nipple and do some isolated sucking and swallowing? And then does that patient then progress with some pacing and controlled flow to accept show cues and be able to regulate his, his suck swallow breathe coordination with support. And that's all within a session. We have to not just think, how does this patient present? This is what you're ready for. You need to ride it through with the patient. And then thinking of all of the factors when a patient is admitted, what is happening in their world? You have to think about sedation, post-op recovery, deconditioning, effect of meds, you need to think about the patient's age and are they getting into the point where they're losing their non-nutritive suck reflux anyway? You need to think about, could there be vocal cord impairment, but do we have to go searching for that? Is that essential right now? And you need to think about work of breathing. All of these interplay and we make a decision as a team. So we're gonna talk about a patient who has um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And she was born at 34 weeks gestation. When we did the clinical exam, she presented more like a 36 weeker um, per the physician. So a little bit um, more advanced. Um, I'm going to take you through her course briefly. We don't have time. We, we saw her over a seven month period for all of our single ventricle patients. They need a multiple stage um, surgeries in order to stabilize their cardiopulmonary systems. And so we follow them in a home monitoring program that because there's a high, um, there's a high risk of interstage mortality before, between that first surgery and that second surgery. And so we are able to be a little bit more liberal with some of these patients because we follow them so closely and we can keep an eye on them. But what did we do with her? So she was born. She was on mechanical ventilation for a while. If you just follow here, we're not going to go through each one, but you can see the progression at bottom is, um, her age in days here, and then we'll go to weeks. This is her voice score. And we got involved pretty early on working on non-nutritive suck, secretion management. And then we saw her post-op working on being able to handle her secretions and start in some conservative PO trials. Would we feed a patient that was showing tons of oral secretions or would you spend your whole session just focusing on that? Or would you say, hey, Maybe once you start handling your secretions, even in that session, maybe we could actually do some oral trials. So we have to think about when we're thinking about our therapeutic interventions, we have to think about what our therapeutic targets are. And there should be a direct relation, even if we're not, we don't know the physiology of the swallow. In an ideal world, yes, 
where we would love an instrumental when that patient is at their prime and saying, we've tried a lot of things, we're, we're concerned about their swallow, and now I need more information to, to, to come up with a plan. But there's a lot of times when it's not appropriate to do so. And where, how do we allow some level of risk as a team and come up with therapy targets? So here's an example on the, when we were working on her non-nutritive suck and her swallowing, it starts at the beginning with position and handling, holding and skin to skin, managing oral secretions. So some of the things that we would do would be, um, sorry, I was just getting feedback. So we would do deep pressure to her gums and laterally back and forth. Think about the base of your tongue. If you have a patient who's not swallowing their, their secretions and you have your molecular space full of secretions, how do you make a patient initiate a swallow? That can be a therapy, a, a therapeutic target, but if that patient isn't ready to engage in non-nutritive suck, how do we do that? What's going to happen to that patient? You give them a pacifier, maybe they root and they go to latch, they go to suck, the negative pressure whoop, brings the secretions right towards their airway, they gag, and everyone says they're aversive. They don't want the pacifier. Well, how do I shape that? And so if you think about the physiology and of a swallow and your oral anatomy and what happens, how do we swallow if I have... If I do deep pressure on the lateral sides of their mouth and they bring their tongue over to the side, that base of tongue moves too. And then they initiate a swallow. And that's not to say every patient's going to respond that way, but we have to think, what am I doing and how did that patient respond? And was it the goal that I want? Increasing frequency of swallows. Thinking about... Um, whether what position their mouth is in, are they gonna gag because they have their mouth open and they transported secretions back? Is that, can we improve that if we give a little bit of support to have less airflow going over the back of their tongue? So we need to think, why is a baby not swallowing? Why is the baby not sucking? We need to think about the therapeutic targets and come up with a safe feeding plan that ideally, providing feedback in, that ideally gives them the opportunity to practice. So this patient got discharged um, when she was just before three weeks old, and we saw her weekly in her HM, in the HMP visits. She was taking like about 20, 20 to 30 ml by mouth. We had never done a study on her, but she was self-limiting her feeds. But over time, even over the next week, she started improving her feeding cues. She then needed another cardiac surgery. We did not do an instrumental because she was progressing and she was, she had roomed all, she had weaned all the way to room air, which is a good sign that her lungs are tolerating. Even if she was aspirating a little bit, we talk with our pulmonologist and we make a decision. Okay. This baby, this baby looks like her, she's in good pulmonary health, even though she's at a high risk of interstage mortality. These are our sickest babies. The patient needed another cardiac surgery. And then we made the decision because she was showing such good progress outpatient and showing cues, we did not put the NG tube back in right when she was discharged. And we allowed her to progress naturally with um, hunger cues and being able to use a little bit of TPN. And she went home on room air. We followed that patient weekly. She did pretty well. She ended up having some admissions for um, to the PICU because she had some head trauma. She ate fine through that. There were two different instances. One, her dad had a seizure and dropped her. Another, she fell off the bed. She ate fine through that. She got a respiratory illness. We decreased her flow rate to help with her suck, swallow, breathe coordination and her endurance in the setting of that, and then went back to a level two. Um, we did increase, although we know that it's important that we 
slow the flow rate down to help a child have better endurance because of suck swallow breathe coordination. We know a higher suck swallow ratio. You're doing more sucks, you're breathing that time. And then we have to match that with efficiency. So we did increase her to a level two to, so she could have more optimal weight gain. She then had her um, second stage surgery. She had her Glenn and she had a really difficult course um, after that. And she got extubated, but she was intubated for a few weeks. We saw her after she was on continuous feeds. She was four or five months at the time, which is right at that prime time when she, you're going to lose your automatic suck or be at risk too. It's not going to be as automatic. And then um, we started working with her. The way that she was presenting was with an aberrant oral motor plan. So she was groping. She would gag when I would work with her. But when I would when I would work with her and she was able to suck and establish a jaw grating that was appropriate and not clenching and biting down, not like a tonic bite, but looked like she just had lost her oral motor plan, she would engage in sustained suck, swallow, breathe coordination, and she was able to progress. So we did not do an instrumental assessment on her and saw her outpatient. This is what we'll do sometimes with our finger input between your upper and lower jaw in order to create a boundary. It's the same thing that we do with your jaw here. You put, you put your hands on patients for a lot of different reasons for support, not necessarily just because of reduced muscle strength. And so to provide a border, whether it's too wide of excursions or she's clenching down, just providing your thumb or your finger in between the upper and lower border really gave her that progression. And then she was able to progress. Um, we ended up removing her NG tube and we needed to titrate kind of how she was feeding with how the nipple flow rate, she was still preventing with a little bit of oral aversion. Um, and so we ended up doing a fees on her just to make sure that her vocal cords were working okay and that we weren't missing anything um, as she was progressing and we were expecting her to get to better volumes. So this is, so she did not participate very well in the fees because she just was screaming most of the time, but overall her vocal folds were working okay. Um, and she did pretty well. So she's home growing, feeding, we follow her intermittently and she has a home program um, in order to have the parents keep track of more skills that they can teach. Thank you. Sorry, went a little bit over. Thank you, Kimberly. Our next speaker is gonna set up her slides. Are there any questions for Kimberly about her single ventricle case or anything else? I'll ask you a question, Kimberly. <clears throat> um, so in your hospital, do you get a lot of the um, providers wanting an instrumental swallow assessment in the cardiac population? And how do you address that? We do not. So we're on the far other side of, they really want us to do a systems approach where we're looking at the stability, physiologic stability. Um, so we will even feed patients conservatively on feet on CPAP, knowing the risk, and we all are understanding that there could be trace aspiration, but we're giving the patient, we're, you're, we're utilizing their cues and being able to say, okay, if this patient's cueing, we're providing the most kind of the best support that we can, small feeds and watching if they're weaning from respiratory support, they don't want us to do instrumental assessments unless we really need to. And then 
we will do them when they're inpatient, but a lot of times we would wait till they're outpatient and their systems are more stable. Hi there. I'm Jamie, and I'm hoping to use this time to talk about how fees can be used as a treatment, not just as a diagnostic tool. All right. So I started my career at the University of Washington about 17 years ago. And fast forward, I got to come back now uh, in our level for NICU and work with Amy Faraday as one of my key colleagues. So thank you to Amy for her help with this presentation and all the things NICU. We are a 48 bed unit and we have a team of five SLPs and five PTs doing a really neuroprotective model. Uh, we focus on the preventative care and have a really fabulous team and opportunity to care for these babies. All right, let's jump in. So for our complex feeding children, Oh, closer. We know that time, experience, and optimized practice really is what is essential. Each feeding experience really is its own neurodevelopmental, neuromapping event. It's going to shape and guide their oral feeding experience in the days, weeks, and even years to come. So in therapy, our goal is to make sure that we improve and teach all of those around them to help these children elicit uh, enjoyment, reduce stress cues, optimize swallow respiratory coordination, of course, mitigate aspiration risk, because that's what we like. Um, but at times, despite our effort, you know, it really just doesn't go as planned. And when this happens and things are not progressing as expected, we need to kind of ask, huh, what do we do? We kind of hit this fork in the road. So at times, we have these very nice overt clinical signs of swallowing difficulty. This can be, you know, the Brady DSATs, the upper airway wheezing, increased oxygen needs, elevated bicarb levels that our pulmonologists love to measure for. But sometimes it's the more subtle signs that really deserve our attention. This not progressing to meet our clinical expectations, you know, the disengagement, those aversive behaviors, those are ones that sometimes kind of raise our eyebrow. At the UDEM, we find so much value in fees. Uh, our exams are conducted by our ENT colleagues. They come over from Seattle Children's. Uh, they come over two times a month, and we really focus on the babies that have matured to 37 weeks and plus. You know, we find that the big question is, is this representative? Are we able to actually show during a fees that this is a swallow that this baby is doing? And the answer to that is really yes. Uh, we give sucrose to our infants before the exam and during the pass, allow them to suck on the pacifier, they're held in laps, they're swaddled. The feeder is a bedside nurse that's familiar with them, their speech path uh, on our team, or sometimes it's even the parent, especially if they're breastfeeding. It really is representative of this kind of natural feeding experience. This low risk, this ability to tolerate the exam. And during our, let's see, we're at over a hundred exams now in uh, the UW NICU, there's not been a single adversive event. We've also had a really marked decrease in the number of video fluoroscopic swallow studies, uh, which of course our adult SLPs enjoy not having to share the radiology space with us. 
One thing that's really kind of become, oops, oh, not the good stuff yet. Value added. So during a fees, there's really this nice real-time data gathering. Uh, these external markers, the infants are showing us, we can correlate that with kind of some objective findings. It's the eyebrow raise. It's that baby's grimace. It's that slight pause, apnea. Uh, sometimes it's that retreat, the arch back. You can watch for is something coming back up and that's why we're seeing these behaviors or is it due to something more um, ascending, descending? Strider, right? Is the structure, is this a functional issue? And really often with all of these things, what we're asking is, is it really innocent? As sometimes our teams are saying, you know, just push through, just feed around it. Or is it more problematic? Is the strider actually telling us that something's going wrong? By using fees in our treatment and this real online data gathering, we've been able to reduce the number of just kind of arbitrary restrictions that we're putting on the volume limits, the time limits, these things that we're kind of going, ooh, if we knew more, maybe we could push them, but we just don't. So let's just kind of pause or hold back. So utilizing this data to guide progression at bedside for our delayed and atypical kids, again, not every baby needs a fees, don't get me wrong, but it can be so useful when you need it. When we can correlate behaviors during the fees, we have the ability to immediately trial modifications. So it's not only just identify, but now what are we gonna do about it? Can we improve their performance of their overall feeding experience, right? Can we uh, have a peek here at this nice secretion aspiration, breast feed aspiration, maybe a little bottle feed aspiration. I won't go into too many details because this is kind of our jam, but the uh, therapeutic feeding modifications that we can do online during a fees are each of these. You have the ability to change positioning different than in the booth. We have the ability to provide those different supports, change out the flow method. We can use mom's real breast milk. We can use the formula the baby's used to. No longer having to spend all that time with the barium. Again, endurance. These babies will tolerate the scope through an entire feed. You're not limited to the amount of radiation time you're able to do. Yeah, I think previously we had one that was a 25 minute exam because this baby A was tolerating it and B was telling us so much. We at the UW only change viscosity and temperature during an instrumental. So it is nice to be able to kind of do it at bedside, do it more frequently if need be. So, oops, too many computers. The potential outcomes are kind of these big three. You either get reassurance and say, let's carry on. You get to adapt the plan, make a change. And with the fees, we know it works. Or we identify that there are more of these safety concerns. We need to continue pre-feeding opportunities because clearly we want to progress, but maybe oral feeding as a primary goal is not quite there yet. All right, I'm gonna do a quick time check here. I think we're doing all right. So um, this is a case study I wanted to talk about. This is our friend Sebi. He was born at 27 weeks gestation. Uh, he came out via C-section because his mom had placental abruption and premature 
preterm rupture of her membranes. Unfortunately, there was a significant intrauterine drug history. I, the mother of the baby actually endorsed methamphetamine and fentanyl use on the day of uh, her rupture. So upon arrival, Sebi was initiated right on CPAP down in the OR and eventually led to intubation, ideally just for surf, but turned out he needed to keep the tube for a little longer. He transferred up to our NICU and he started his NOWS treatment. He went through a pretty prolonged wean of the clonidine and morphine. And through that time, he really required a lot of neurosensory behavioral supports. This was the kid who required the rocking, the bouncing, all of the prolonged holding, anything you could do to help him get some extra input. So kind of a timeline down here at the bottom, just looking at his respiratory, uh, as you can see, it was quite complex. So um, in our NICU, we start milk drops at birth, just that one single drop. Um, we have you know, donor milk for those babies whose mothers are not identified or who uh, aren't able to produce milk. He was transitioned to NIVNAVA at about one week. And then fast forward at 30 weeks, uh, speech started and did our first pre-feed evaluation. And during that time, you know, he still has an Ivnava tech catheters in, but this kid was loving to suck and he was loving his milk drops. So we were hoping respiratory wise, he would progress quite nicely. Unfortunately, he stayed on B uh, bubble CPAP at pretty high levels. FiO2 was fluctuating greatly, especially with cares. Um, and at 36 weeks, he got himself the diagnosis of BPD. Through BPD, they um, transitioned and we did some wean finally onto high flow nasal cannula. And I'll get, yeah, let's move on to that. So, okay, is this slide readable? Have a peek for a second. So at the top here, I kind of scale across the respiratory support. So at six liters of high flow nasal cannula um, was when our BPD team said, Jamie, it's time to feed him. And I gasped. I think probably louder than the room wanted. Um, and, but he was 40 weeks gestation at this point. The team's like, it's time. So we started on a pretty restrictive. I wasn't super comfortable with a six liter high flow nasal cannula. Uh, raise your hand if you've fed a baby on six liters of high flow nasal cannula. Yeah, good, good, good. Okay. Um, so I proposed, let's feed him. Instead of doing an arbitrary thing, let's see what he does. And Thank goodness the fees was reassuring. He had this great plan in place. We kept things simple. He looked good on the ultra preemie. We did some, you know, a little bit of volume limits, some strict pacing, horizontal for his respiratory status. But then, as you can see, his volume levels start to go up. That's kind of that trend there on the intake graph. And then he's having his respiratory weans. There were some bedside feeding changes, not all you know, that we agreed on, um, but some were bottle shape change, flow rate, positioning, all of those things, because we were all trying to meet Sebi where he was. He was a really challenging kid from a state standpoint. He unfortunately did not continue on this beautiful upward trend that we were seeing, but instead he kind of dropped back down. So fees number two was recommended because we really were saying, why now? Why this change in quality and quantity? Um, all of a sudden this increase in adversive behaviors. Is he trying to tell us something? And unfortunately he was. So the result of fees number two showed us that he now had a pretty marked pharyngeal delay. 
he had penetration and aspiration with warm fins. Um, but we were able to get him to be tolerating chilled thin liquids. This sped up his swallow just enough. We were able to get this plan and we carried on. So lo and behold, he had this nice improvement again. And then things worsened. We ended up at fees number three at 45 weeks gestation. And, and Sebi stayed with us through this whole time because he didn't have an identified caregiver. And so there was not an option for him to, you know, learn an NG tube training and get him on out of here. They also were really hoping that we could get him off of oxygen just because that'd be one more thing. All of this changed the wean, the low flow, um, more reflux signs, these adversive arching, et cetera, uh, led us to fees number three. During phase number three, things were looking better. Um, he had more edema though, and it kind of caused us to pause. Our ENT folks said, you know, this really looks reflux related and we're hoping to start a PPI. The team was on board for it, um, though that's not always the go-to. And a caregiver was identified at this point, we were able to really kind of progress him forward. Um, so the point being each of these fees kind of came at a different mark in time. It wasn't because we were saying he must have a repeat to advance, but instead it was an opportunity to look again and make changes. So what's next? At the UW, um, kind of as we think about this future, future planning, the next steps for our fees program is, you know, really thinking about oral feeding for these kids who are old enough gestation-wise, but maybe, um, you know, we're holding back because of their respiratory status. These pretty severe BPD kids, could we be helping guide their oral feeding practices sooner? And the second part, which is super exciting and uh, quite new, is our speech paths passing the scope. So kind of still in conjunction with our ENT folks, but definitely working towards this opportunity for speech to have you know, more online identification, get in there, not having to have the set date that ENT is coming and get everything set up to it. Uh, we're going to start probably with kids that we know about the known anatomy, um, but definitely this idea to be able to do this therapeutic progression a little more readily. All right, that's it. Thank you. Does anybody have questions for Jamie? Uh, how did you support state regulation? Say that again. Almost. How did you um, support state regulation when they were passing the scope, especially with the uh, drug exposed baby? No, in terms of like keeping them calm and organized. Yes. Um, I apologize. I was really struggling there. Um, lots of swaddling. I actually think Amy fed uh, this baby a couple of the times. Um, he was one that you kind of, you know, alligator wrestled a little bit. He did really well. And one of the techniques that we found was having him seated. So kind of seated straight against your uh, stomach. He had that good hip flexion. It kept him from arching and going into extension. The swaddle, the sweeties, all of that. Um, he was reduced in his sensation. 
And honestly, sadly enough, he kind of enjoyed the scope. And what we found during one of them was that actually that amount of input, he really uh, benefited from. Hi, great talk. Um, what's your degree of confidence with the fees in terms of it being a definitive assessment of safety? Mm. Uh, since of course, silent aspiration, you're not gonna have as good of a idea of, are you gonna recommend a formal swallow for him as an outpatient? Uh, do you typically do that after fees is uh, great for progression, but how comfortable are you with that being the definitive assessment of their safety? Yeah. Great question, great question. So, you know, the use of VFSS as our gold standard for kind of quantity of aspiration is kind of how we still think about it. So if we are suspecting that this child is aspirating and we're not finding a technique that can get them to mitigate that, then yes, we can go to a video. Um, if our view isn't good, if they didn't tolerate the exam, then yes, we have video in our back pocket and that we can do any day of the week other than the weekends. Um, but in terms of for this guy, because things were looking pretty reassuring and we felt like we kept finding techniques that we could get him out of his aspiration and penetration, we felt pretty confident. Um, he did go home uh, with an NG tube just to help support all of his you know, dysregulation. Um, and then follow-up was going to be with the video, especially since he still had some O's when he went home and that, you know, his lung condition, but, you know, he was followed closely. His bicarb levels were not increasing. So our pulmonary uh, pulmonologists were saying, you know, uh, he he's doing well enough and none of us wanted to take away all of his feeding opportunities. Um, he did, I think in phase two, you may have seen, he was aspirating the thickened liquids. So all of a sudden we're starting to go, what other choices do we have for this kid besides kind of hanging out in this diagnostic E um, therapeutic realm? Um, and everyone felt pretty comfortable with that. Yeah. Thank you. All right, my name is Bridget Harrington. I'll see if I can roller coaster through the rest of our panel. Um, thanks to our other panels for great talks and just kind of supporting all of these common themes for these complex babies um, that we're presenting. I have no disclosures. Um, Um, I think we are well aware of why this matters. And those of us on the panel today um, have expertise and knowledge regarding feeding related struggles that children with aerodigestive disorders face. Um, our patients require so many medical interventions and significant diet modifications to mitigate the risks of aspiration. And as a result, the feeding challenges are amplified, feeding related milestones are disrupted, and there's a significant risk of long-term negative impact on oral feeding skills and mealtime routines as we are learning. Differential diagnosis of feeding and swallowing disorders is critical um, in the medical workup for our aerodigestive patients to identify an appropriate intervention plan. And this is of course a dynamic process as children are growing and developing. Um, ultimately our ongoing goal is to support pleasurable, safe, efficient feeding and mealtimes while optimizing their health and development. The case I'm presenting today, um, sorry, the case I'm presenting uh, to illustrate these points is a child who was born full term, presented to their primary care doctor with feeding difficulties and concerns for reflux early in their weeks and months of life, um, and ultimately was referred for a VFSS. Um, 
the parents' concerns were significant um, in that they were noting weight loss, prolonged feeds, frequent congestion with color changes, arching, crying, nasal regurgitation during feeding. And they really were just struggling so much and wanted to be able to feed her and have a more enjoyable experience. Um, I'll just let this play through while we're talking, but unfortunately the results of the VFSS showed um, significant UES dysfunction. Um, you can see in these images um, how um, she's just unable to really fully open and relax the cricopharyngeal muscle. And as a result is having significant um, pharyngeal residue that's building and resulting in aspiration over time. Um, and although she showed a lot of signs of discomfort and gagging at the time, her oral motor skills, um, despite all this seemed functional for bottle feeding. Um, in, when functioning normally, the UES is tonically contracted at rest and opens during swallowing, burping, and vomiting. Um, Hyolaryngeal elevation and excursion and pharyngeal driving pressures allow the UES to open during swallowing. In the diagnostic process, categorizing the dysfunction as either structural or neurological will both guide the intervention plan and also kind of help with determining the prognosis for the patient. If the reason for UES dysfunction is poor pharyngeal driving pressures to open the UES, and then cricopharyngeal Botox is offered as the intervention, the pattern of dysphagia is unlikely to change or significantly improve. And as quoted by um, Ashley O'Rourke, who's an otolaryngologist, um, at one of her high-resolution pharyngeal manometry trainings, she said, you can open the door, but they are going to have to walk through it. This baby's feeding plan after that um, initial swallow study was to transition to ND tube feeds. She did some small volume oral feeds with hope that we can continue her oral skills. Um, and she was referred to the air digestive clinic for additional medical workup. Um, prior to her clinic visit, um, because the parent is an employee at the hospital and has a way to contact everyone, um, she reached out and was said, <laughs> she said that she was really struggling with feeding with the bottle and so she no longer was bottle feeding. She was doing some minimal breastfeeding because she was really terrified the baby would lose her oral skills. Um, the plan at that time after the air digestive clinic visit a few weeks later was to do um, Botox to the cricopharyngeal muscle. Um, and keep her breastfeeding, but with small volumes because she was really symptomatic at the time of the visit. She, um, between the um, cricopharyngeal Botox injection and um, her repeat swallow study, um, which was planned for two or three weeks after the Botox, was a feeding therapy session where we just um, touched, based, uh, touched base to try to maximize her skills, make, keep her going with really small volumes. She was presented as being pretty disorganized um, with her bottle feeding skills, but functional for just about five mLs. Um, she was showing a lot of stress cues. Um, and again, we really had to limit her PO intake because of her um, response to these feeds. So again, as you've, we've all been learning, we have these critical developmental windows and here we are at this crossroads really between a positive oral feeding experience for her and oral feeding aversion um, as she's having some pretty unpleasant experiences with her um, feeding. She came for her 
Second, um, post uh, Botox injection BFSS, which shows objective improvement in the relaxation of cricopharyngeal muscle during swallowing. She continues to have post-swallow residue that led to aspiration, but the recommendations at this time were to cautiously liberalize her oral feeding plan with two to three bottles of 10 to 15 mLs a day, one to two opportunities to breastfeed via, via a pumped breast, and um, introduction of dipped spoon taste of puree, again, um, to maximize our opportunity to keep her moving forward. Just gonna fast forward a little bit there. So you can still see a little bit of that prominence there, but it's much, much less. So moving forward, her follow-up visit with the Aero um, dysphagia management team a few weeks later was positive. She was doing well but um, she presented to the ENT about two months after the Botox to the cricopharyngeal muscle with gagging on secretions and congestion and wetness with her bottles. Her parents had discontinued her bottle feeding related to these symptoms. And she, went, um, she underwent another uh, Botox injection to manage these symptoms. And unfortunately, she became ill after the Botox injection procedure and was admitted for about one week um, after that. So she came for yet another swallow study, number three, um, which is sort of embarrassing after talking about reducing radiation risk with bees, but um, we really needed to know like how the Botox was impacting her swallow function. Um, <clears throat> this swallow study, unfortunately, was very challenging. Um, she refused the bottle entirely, so she was offered some purees, but she was pretty... Um, disorganized at this time. She, um, you can see in these images, is just not really able to clear, but she's also pretty, um, just sort of disengaged at the time. She, she was struggling to participate in this exam. Um, so there's not an appreciable cricopharyngeal bar, but it's difficult to discern or make a judgment on CP relaxation given her refusals, her limited engagement, or recent recovery from illness. I think all of these variables made it challenging to kind of take these results and feel comfortable moving forward. Um, so we, we again had to kind of pull back um, with her feeding plan after the swallow study. She fortunately had an aerodigestive clinic visit the next day. Um, oops. Um, she was very much struggling with choking on saliva. Her parents were having to hold her all night long. She was turning blue and dusky and she really wasn't showing much improvement after that second Botox injection. So they moved forward with dilation of UES. And I'm sorry to say she had another swallow study, um, <laughs> but um, you know, I think what we were struggling with is like, we, we know she's such high risk with her history and we just felt like this was important to um, make sure that we were keeping her, keeping her as safe as possible. And we wanted to see the results of the dilation to make sure that this intervention was successful in case she needs it to be repeated in the future. Um, so you can see um, improved bolus flow through the UES here. She had adequate airway of protection initially, but she continued with some post-swallow residue. There's not an observable cricopharyngeal bar, but um, she is still struggling to protect her airway as she progresses with a little bit more volume. Despite all of that, I think we again felt cautiously hopeful that um, we might be able to keep her moving forward with small volumes of oral intake um, as they've been really avoiding that up until that point. 
she came for a feeding therapy session just a couple of weeks ago. Um, the baby at that time demonstrated much more organized bottle feeding skills with minimal signs or symptoms of dysphagia with small volumes of intake, about 15 ml. Um, she's drinking from a Dr. Brown preemie nipple, so it's quite slow. Um, she, her mom described how she's no longer needing to pace her. She felt like she is um, really interested in wanting to take more. So um, at this point, um, you can see kind of our plan there at the bottom, but um, we, you know, we're cautiously optimistic that we can kind of keep going, but we understand she's a moving target. And I think the fortunate thing is her family is really very responsive and skilled at reading her cues. And although her dysphagia story continues, I feel happy that we've been able to preserve at least a positive relationship to feeding and some functional oral motor skills for her bottle um, with some, some introduction of solids, hopefully in the next few weeks. All right, we'll take any questions. Hi, yeah, I've got a couple questions. Um, excellent talk, all of you did fabulous. It's very exciting to see what's happening in the advanced feeding therapy techniques world. Um, question on the Botox case. Uh, when you had the initial Botox, did they change NG delivery at all? Or did they just keep the NG at the same bolus delivery or did they prolong it at all for the risk of ascending aspiration? That's part one of my question. And then secondly, you also had the last, I think maybe the VFSS4 had no indwelling NG. Did she get a G-tube in that time zone? She did get a G-tube. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of bowled over that point. <laughs> um, so she, um, in response to your first question, if she, like the NG-tube um, used during, at the time of the Botox injection initially, I, I'm not sure that there are any changes to her NG-tube use at that time. I think they just kept it the same before and after, um, because they were really waiting for the VFSS or, uh, I, I might be getting that timing confused about like when that G tube was, was done. Sorry about that. Thank you. We probably need to move forward with this next panel. 